Book two, chapter twelve of Michael Strogoff by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter twelve Irkutsk. Irkutsk, the capital of eastern Siberia, is a populous town containing, in ordinary times, thirty thousand inhabitants. On the right side of the Angara rises a hill, on which are built numerous churches, a lofty cathedral, and dwellings disposed in picturesque order. Seen at a distance, from the top of the mountain which rises at about twenty versts off along the Siberian high road, this town, with its cupolas, its bell towers, its steeples slender as minarets, its domes like pot-bellied Chinese jars, presents something of an oriental aspect but this similarity vanishes as the traveller enters the town half byzantine half chinese becomes european as soon as he sees its macadamized roads bordered with pavements traversed by canals planted with gigantic birches its houses of brick and wood some of which have several stories the numerous equipages which drive along not only tarantases but broughams and coaches lastly its numerous inhabitants far advanced in civilization to whom the latest paris fashions are not unknown being the refuge for all the siberians of the province irkutsk was at this time very full stores of every kind had been collected in abundance irkutsk is the emporium of the innumerable kinds of merchandise which are exchanged between china central asia and europe the authorities had therefore no fear with regard to admitting the peasants of the valley of the angara and leaving a desert between the invaders and the town irkutsk is the residence of the governor-general of eastern siberia below him acts a civil governor in whose hands is the administration of the province a head of police who has much to do in a town where exiles abound and lastly a mayor chief of the merchants and a person of some importance from his immense fortune and the influence which he exercises over the people the garrison of irkutsk was at that time composed of an infantry regiment of cossacks consisting of two thousand men and a body of police wearing helmets and blue uniforms laced with silver besides as has been said in consequence of the events which had occurred the brother of the czar had been shut up in the town since the beginning of the invasion a journey of political importance had taken the grand duke to these distant provinces of central asia after passing through the principal siberian cities the grand duke who travelled en militaire rather than en prince without any parade accompanied by his officers and escorted by a regiment of cossacks arrived in the transbaikalsine provinces nikolaevsk the last russian town situated on the shore of the sea of ohotsk had been honoured by a visit from him arrived on the confines of the immense muscovite empire the grand duke was returning towards irkutsk from which place he intended to retake the road to moscow when sudden as a thunderclap came the news of the invasion he hastened to the capital but only reached it just before communication with russia had been interrupted there was time to receive only a few telegrams from st petersburg and moscow and with difficulty to answer them before the wire was cut irkutsk was isolated from the rest of the world the grand duke had now only to prepare for resistance and this he did with that determination and coolness of which under other circumstances he had given incontestable proof the news of the taking of ichim omsk and tomsk successively reached irkutsk it was necessary at any price to save the capital of siberia 
reinforcements could not be expected for some time the few troops scattered about in the provinces of siberia could not arrive in sufficiently large numbers to arrest the progress of the tartar columns since therefore it was impossible for irkutsk to escape attack the most important thing to be done was to put the town in a state to sustain a siege of some duration the preparations were begun on the day tomsk fell into the hands of the tartars at the same time with this last news the grand duke heard that the emir of bokhara and the allied khans were directing the invasion in person but what he did not know was that the lieutenant of these barbarous chiefs was ivan ogaryev a russian officer whom he had himself reduced to the ranks but with whose person he was not acquainted first of all as we have seen the inhabitants of the province of irkutsk were compelled to abandon the towns and villages those who did not take refuge in the capital had to retire beyond lake baikal a district to which the invasion would probably not extend its ravages the harvests of corn and fodder were collected and stored up in the town and irkutsk the last bulwark of the moscovite power in the far east was put in a condition to resist the enemy for a lengthened period irkutsk founded in sixteen eleven is situated at the confluence of the irkut and the angara on the right bank of the latter river two wooden drawbridges built on piles connected the town with its suburbs on the left bank on this side the fence was easy the suburbs were abandoned the bridges destroyed the angara being here very wide it would not be possible to pass it under the fire of the besieged but the river might be crossed both above and below the town and consequently irkutsk ran a risk of being attacked on its east side on which there was no wall to protect it the whole population were immediately set to work on the fortifications they labored day and night the grand duke observed with satisfaction the zeal exhibited by the people in the work whom ere long he would find equally courageous in the defence soldiers merchants exiles peasants all devoted themselves to the common safety a week before the tartars appeared on the angara earthworks had been raised a fosse flooded by the waters of the angara was dug between the scarp and the counterscarp the town could not now be taken by a coup de main it must be invested and besieged the third tartar column the one which came up the valley of the yenisei on the twenty fourth of september appeared in sight of irkutsk it immediately occupied the deserted suburbs every building in which had been destroyed so as not to impede the fire of the grand duke's guns unfortunately but few in number and of small calibre the tartar troops as they arrived organized a camp on the bank of the angara whilst waiting the arrival of the two other columns commanded by the emir and his allies the junction of these different bodies was effected on the twenty fifth of september in the angara camp and the whole of the invading army except the garrisons left in the principal conquered towns was concentrated under the command of feofar khan the passage of the angara in front of the irkutsk having been regarded by ogaryev as impracticable a strong body of troops crossed several versts up the river by means of bridges formed with boats the grand duke did not attempt to oppose the enemy in their passage he could only impede not prevent it having no field artillery at his disposal and he therefore remained in irkutsk the tartars now occupied the right bank of the river then advancing towards the town they burned in passing the summer house of the governor-general and at last having entirely invested irkutsk took up their positions for the siege 
Ivan Ogaryev, who was a clever engineer, was perfectly competent to direct a regular siege, but he did not possess the materials for operating rapidly. He was disappointed, too, in the chief object of all his efforts, the surprise of Irkutsk. Things had not turned out as he hoped. First, the march of the Tartar army was delayed by the Battle of Tomsk, and secondly, the preparations for the defense were made far more rapidly than he supposed possible. These two things had balked his plans. He was now under the necessity of instituting a regular siege of the town. However, by his suggestion, the emir twice attempted the capture of the place, at the cost of a large sacrifice of men. He threw soldiers on the earthworks which presented any weak point. But these two assaults were repulsed with the greatest courage. The Grand Duke and his officers did not spare themselves on this occasion. They appeared in person. They led the civil population to the ramparts. Citizens and peasants both did their duty. At the second attack, the Tartars managed to force one of the gates. A fight took place at the head of Bolchaya Street, two versts long, on the banks of the Angara. But the Cossacks, the police, the citizens, united in so fierce a resistance that the Tartars were driven out. Ivan Ogaryev then thought of obtaining by stratagem what he could not gain by force. We have said that his plan was to penetrate into the town, make his way to the Grand Duke, gain his confidence, and, when the time came, give up the gates to the besiegers, and, that done, wreak his vengeance on the brother of the Tsar. The Tsigane Sangare, who had accompanied him to the Angara, urged him to put this plan in the execution. Indeed, it was necessary to act without delay. The Russian troops from the government of Yakutsk were advancing towards Irkutsk. They had concentrated along the upper course of the Lena. In six days they would arrive. Therefore, between six days had passed, Irkutsk must be betrayed. Ogaryev hesitated no longer. One evening, the 2nd of October, a council of war was held in the grand saloon of the palace of the governor-general. This palace, standing at the end of Bolchaya Street, overlooked the river. From its windows could be seen the camp of the Tartars, and, had the invaders possessed guns of wider range, they would have rendered the palace uninhabitable. The Grand Duke, General Voranzov, the governor of the city, and the chief of the merchants, with several officers, had collected to determine upon various proposals. Gentlemen, said the Grand Duke, you know our situation exactly. I have the firm hope that we shall be able to hold out until the arrival of the Yakutsk troops. We shall then be able to drive off these barbarian hordes, and it will not be my fault if they do not pay dearly for this invasion of the Moscovite territory. Your Highness knows that all the population of Irkutsk may be relied upon, said General Voranzov. Yes, General, replied the Grand Duke. And I do justice to their patriotism. Thanks to God, they have not yet been subjected to the horrors of epidemic and famine, and I have reason to hope that they will escape them. But I cannot admire their courage on the ramparts enough. You hear my words, Sir Merchant, and I beg you to repeat such to them. I thank your highness in the name of the town, answered the merchant chief. May I ask you what is the most distant date when we may expect the relieving army? Six days at most, sir, replied the Grand Duke. A brave and clever messenger managed this morning to get into the town, and he told me that fifty thousand Russians under General Kisilev are advancing by forced marches. Two days ago they were on the banks of the Lena at Kurensk, 
and now neither frost nor snow will keep them back. Fifty thousand good men, taking the Tartars on the flank, will soon set us free. I will add, said the chief of the merchants, that we shall be ready to execute your orders any day that your highness may command a sortie. Good, sir, replied the Grand Duke. Wait till the heads of the relieving columns appear on the heights, and we shall speedily crush these invaders. Then, turning to General Voranzov, Tomorrow, said he, we will visit the works on the right bank. Ice is drifting down the Angara, which will not be long in freezing, and in that case the Tartars might perhaps cross. Will your highness allow me to make an observation? said the chief of the merchants. Do so, sir. I have more than once seen the temperature fall to thirty and forty degrees below zero, and the Angara has still carried down drifting ice without entirely freezing. This is no doubt owing to the swiftness of its current. If, therefore, the Tartars have no other means of crossing the river, I can assure your highness that they will not enter Irkutsk in that way. The governor-general confirmed this assertion. It is a fortunate circumstance, responded the Grand Duke. Nevertheless, we must hold ourselves ready for any emergency. He then, turning towards the head of the police, asked, Have you nothing to say to me, sir? I have, your highness, answered the head of police. A petition which is addressed to you through me. Addressed by whom? By the Siberian exiles, whom, as your highness knows, are in the town to the number of five hundred. The political exiles distributed over the province had been collected in Irkutsk from the beginning of the invasion. They had obeyed the order to rally in the town and leave the villages where they exercised their different professions, some doctors, some professors, either at the gymnasium or at the Japanese school or at the school of navigation. The Grand Duke, trusting like the Tsar in their patriotism, had armed them, and they had thoroughly proved their bravery. What do the exiles ask? said the Grand Duke. They ask the consent of your highness, answered the head of police, to their forming a special corps and being placed in the front of the first sortie. Yes, replied the Grand Duke with an emotion which he did not seek to hide. These exiles are Russians, and it is their right to fight for their country. I believe I may assure your highness, said the Governor-General, you will have no better soldiers. But they must have a chief, said the Grand Duke. Who will he be? They wish to recommend to your highness, said the head of police, one of their number, who has distinguished himself on several occasions. Is he a Russian? Yes, a Russian from the Baltic provinces. His name? Vasily Fedor. This exile was Nadia's father. Vasily Fedor, as we have already said, followed his profession of a medical man in Irkutsk. He was clever and charitable, and also possessed the greatest courage and most sincere patriotism. All the time which he did not devote to the sick, he employed in organizing the defense. It was he who had united his companions in exile in the common cause. The exiles, till then mingled with the population, had behaved in such a way as to draw on themselves the attention of the Grand Duke. In several sorties they had paid with their blood their debt to the holy Russia, holy as they believed, and adored by her children. Vasily Fedor had behaved heroically. His name had been mentioned several times, but he never asked either thanks or favors, and when the exiles of Irkutsk thought of forming themselves into a special corps, he was ignorant of their intention of choosing him for their captain. When the head of police mentioned this name, the Grand Duke answered that it was not unknown to him. 
need, remarked General Voranzov. Wassily Fedor is a man of worth and courage. His influence over his companions has always been very great. How long has he been at Irkutsk? asked the Duke. For two years. And his conduct? His conduct, answered the head of police, is that of a man obedient to the special laws which govern him. General, said the Grand Duke, General, be good enough to present him to me immediately. The orders of the Grand Duke were obeyed, and before half an hour had passed, Fedor was introduced into his presence. He was a man over forty, tall, of a stern and sad countenance. One felt that his whole life was summed up in a single word, strife. He had striven and suffered. His features bore a marked resemblance to those of his daughter, Nadia Fedor. This Tartar invasion had severely wounded him in his tenderest affections, and ruined the hope of the father, exiled eight thousand versts from his native town. A letter had apprised him of the death of his wife, and at the same time of the departure of his daughter, who had obtained from the government an authorization to join him at Irkutsk. Nadia must have left Riga on the 10th of July. The invasion had begun on the 15th of July. If at that time Nadia had passed the frontier, what could have become of her in the midst of the invaders? The anxiety of the unhappy father may be supposed when, from that time, he had no further news of his daughter. Vasily Fedor entered the presence of the Grand Duke, bowed, and waited to be questioned. Vasily Fedor, said the Grand Duke, your companions in exile have asked to be allowed to form a select corps. They are not ignorant that in this corps they must make up their minds to be killed to the last man? They are not ignorant of it, replied Fedor. They wish to have you for their captain. I, your highness. Do you consent to be placed at their head? Yes, if it is for the good of Russia. Captain Fedor, said the Grand Duke, you are no longer an exile. Thanks, your highness. But can I command those who are so still? They are so no longer. The brother of the Tsar had granted a pardon to all Fedor's companions in exile, now his companions in arms. Vasily Fedor wrung with emotion the hand which the Grand Duke held out to him, and retired. The latter turned to his officers. The Tsar will not refuse to ratify that pardon, said he, smiling. We need heroes to defend the capital of Siberia, and I have just made some. This pardon, so generously accorded to the exiles of Irkutsk, was indeed an act of real justice and sound policy. It was now night. Through the windows of the palace burned the fires of the Tartar camp, flickering beyond the Angara. Down the river drifted numerous blocks of ice, some of which stuck on the piles of the old bridges, others were swept along by the current with great rapidity. It was evident, as the merchant had observed, that it would be very difficult for the Angara to freeze all over. The defenders of Irkutsk had not to dread being attacked on that side. Ten o'clock had just struck. The Grand Duke was about to dismiss his officers and retire to his apartments when a tumult was heard outside the palace. Almost immediately the door was thrown open, an aide-de-camp appeared and advanced rapidly towards the Grand Duke. Your Highness, said he, a courier from the Tsar. End of chapter 12